Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. The lighting was absolutely perfect. Where I graduated uh, college, it used to be that the theater on campus served a dual purpose. It was the theater and also the chapel. And so every morning at 9.45 a.m. when there was morning chapel, the stage lights and the house lights were on in such a way where the lighting was absolutely perfect. Perfect for what, you're probably asking. Well, the lighting was perfect for newly engaged young ladies to display their diamond rings. I didn't notice this, but one day a young lady who five years from that morning uh, would put a ring on her finger, or I would put a ring on her finger because she said yes, she pointed this out to me that it was this well-known fact amongst the ladies on campus that the best lighting on campus was in the chapel. And so you could be sure of this. After a young lady got engaged, the next time she was in chapel, besides listening to every, every single word that came out of the preacher's mouth, she was going to hold her hand and that new rock and twist her hand this way and that. Eyes enchanted, mind just mesmerized by that display of her fiance's love to her. We're going to be like that this morning. We're going to be like those young ladies. In fact, we're going to be like that throughout our sermon series. And here's why. The gospel, the amazing, brilliant love of our Savior is often compared to a diamond. It's compared to a diamond because, yes, it's, it's beautiful just like a, a priceless gem, but also because the gospel, like a diamond, is not one-dimensional. Diamonds are ex- exquisite and beautiful things uh, because they're not flat. They're not one-dimensional. They're one thing. They're just one gem, and yet they're precisely cut in such a way that when you hold them up to the light and you turn them, Every single angle, every single side that you look at, it's different. You're looking at the same thing, but every aspect, every angle is different because the light hits it in a new and a unique way, shines, bounces around in there, and then reflects into your eyes in a different, distinctive way. And so it is with the gospel. The way our Lord expresses his love to us is not flat and one-dimensional. No, he expresses his love to us in a variety of different ways. The gospel, it's like a beautiful diamond that every page that you turn in scripture is like turning this diamond and you watch as the love of our Lord, this light of our Lord bounces off and reflects to you in, in different ways, in unique ways, in a variety of, well, you could say different languages. The sermon series that we're in, we're calling Replaced. And what we're looking at every single week is the exact same thing, the gospel, the one thing, the captivating love of Christ. But we're going to be looking at it from different angles and looking at it, if you will, using the different metaphors that God uses in his word to express his love to us. We're going to be determining the diamond and looking at it from a different angle each and every week. 
We're gonna see how God expresses his love to us using the language of the battlefield or the language of the marketplace. And this morning, we're gonna be looking at his love to us as he expresses it to us using the language of the courtroom. Specifically, we're gonna look at three different things. We're gonna look at the language of the courtroom as it relates to the charge in your court case, the verdict of your court case, and also the consequence of your court case. We're going to look at that using our sermon lesson this morning, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, open up your Bibles, your devices, or your worship guides to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of our God. And this is the heart of the gospel. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is the center of this gemstone, the beautiful display of God's love. This is your salvation. To use a big fancy church word, this is your justification. This is why you are right with God. God sent Christ and through Christ, he brought you to himself. He reconciled you to him. This is the gospel. This is what it's all about. Before we begin to look at it, and lest we look past the the immensity and the intimacy of the gospel, we first need to, well, comprehend and, and really apprehend a problem, a problem that's here in this text. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That is good news, that Christ came, and even though he didn't have sin, he became sin for us. This is the amazing grace of our God. And yet, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have sin. The truth is so good that Christ became sin for us that it's easy to look past the fact that what it's saying is we have sin. And as you wrestle with the meaning of what it means to have sin, well, you start to understand why God uses the language of the courtroom to express his love to us, to tell us his gospel. Having sin means you have committed a crime. 
having crime means you have guilt, and having guilt means you have punishment. Romans puts it like this, all have sinned. Everyone has crime. Everyone has guilt. And it describes what the guilt and the crime, what the crime is and what the guilt is for. It's this, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. As you stand before God and his, and his righteousness and his holiness, you're not enough. As you stand before God, you've fallen short. You are deficient in the things that you think and the things that you say and the things that you do before the divine. It gets worse. I said there's a consequence. Romans tells us that the wages or the, the, the consequence of our sin is death. It doesn't just put us on death row. It makes us dead. And this is the hard truth to wrestle with. <laughs> but you got to catch it because everything else I say after this in this sermon won't make a lick of sense in, unless you understand this. That in God's world, which is the only world, there's only two kinds of people. There's people who are righteous and there's people who are holy. And then there's people who are dead. There are people who have sins and therefore are dead actually or spiritually. And there is no in-between. There isn't kind of righteous people or semi-righteous people or people who are pretty good, but they just need a little bit of like spiritual therapy to get righteous. No, there are either righteous people or there are dead people, spiritually dead people, and dead people can't do anything except stink, do nothing. That's what dead people do. And this, this is the charge of your court case, is that you are guilty of sin. The charge of the court case is that we have the guilt of sin. There's a doctor. His name's Dr. Geraldo Camacho, and he is a pastor, uh, but he also served uh, for several years as a certified interpreter for the Judicial Council of California. Uh, he made an interesting observation during those years as he interpreted for defendants and the judges as well, uh, that oftentimes, though there is just one judge seat, there's several different judges. And so what will happen in traffic court is that one judge will come in and with the same exact crime or the same exact offense, let's say someone ran a red light, the fine on one hand might be $480. The next time, maybe the same judge, maybe a new judge, but a different person, a different, different offense, the, well, the crime is going to be punished with a fine of, let's say, it was 480 Now this time it's 210 and what you would see is that this time someone runs a red light and they get charged $250. And this time they get charged $90 for this. And what he noticed is that this would frustrate people. This would especially frustrate people who were repeat offenders. And translating for them, what he observed is that oftentimes the people would say to the judge, your honor, you're not playing fair. As you can imagine... This didn't go very well. In the court of law, the judge would then look at this person and said, who said we're playing any games here? You're the one playing around going 40 miles an hour per hour over the speed limit. Because you see, although it seemed unfair to the guilty, well, it was actually fair game. In the court of law, the judge has discretion to exercise the punishment in, in any way that they see fit. The law says it is not good to run and roll through stop signs. The judge says I can exercise the punishment any way that I want. What we see in God's courtroom is something that is similar 
and yet something significantly different. There is a judge, the supreme judge of all the universe, and there's one punishment for our crimes. It's death. It's the punishment for our sins is eternal death. And yet there is no judicial discretion in this area because there is just one judge. He applies it all the time. The wages of your sin is always and will always be death and there's nothing you could, can, or will do about it. There's no appeals. There's no loopholes. But there is a replacement. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Using the language of the courtroom, God expresses his love for you in this way. He says your sins do not count against you. Let's picture this. You and I are standing before that supreme judge of all the universe. We're hearing the verdict being read. We're hearing the charges being read against us. We have guilt for our sins. We're anticipating the verdict being read that we're guilty and here's our punishment. And then someone steps in. Christ steps in and he says, ah, 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 excuse me, (laughs) step aside, please. He takes our place. He replaces us. He looks to the judge and he says, ah, that punishment, the crime of death, I paid for that. (laughs) I paid for those sins. I prayed for all the misdemeanors. I paid for all of the high crimes. I paid for all of the minor infractions and all of the major felonies. I paid for every last one with my holy precious blood. 2,000 years ago on the cross, it's done. It's complete. Judge, your honor, hear this. And God looks down. He looks at you and me. He says, all right. I don't count your sins against you. I, I remember them no more. This is what we talk about when we talk about this big church word called justification or reconciliation. What this is, is that God has brought us to himself and he did it through our replacement. He did it through the blood of Christ Jesus. It's not the other way around. We didn't come to God. He brought us to himself. This then, this is the verdict of your court case. It is God's declaration of your righteousness. What happens is we were full of sin and God replaced that. He replaced that sin with Christ's righteousness and he made it your very own when he declared it to be so on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that, here's why, in Christ, because of Christ, you might become the righteousness of God. Seems unfair, doesn't it? Seems awfully unfair that we have that standing, we have that righteousness, and you didn't earn it. We didn't do a thing for it. You might think, well, I, there, might, there must be something I do to maintain this standing before. There must be some kind of payment that I make. Well, let me remind you, there's only two kinds of people. There's only two kinds of people in God's word. There are those who are holy, there are those who are perfect and righteous, and there are those who are dead. There are those who are spiritually dead in sin and dead people cannot, will not, won't ever be able to do a thing about it. 
And yet God said this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not fair. It is absolutely backwards that this is the way that it should work out. And if you think it's not fair, well, in a sense, you're right. Maybe you've heard it said before, grace is getting the thing that you don't deserve. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. And mercy Mercy is not getting the thing that you do deserve. Say that again. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, God's love. Mercy is not getting the thing we do deserve, the consequence for our sins. And God is rich in both. God is generous in both his grace and his mercy. And what he has done in Christ Jesus is something that really looks unfair. The judge of the universe has exercised, well, his judicial discretion. He didn't change the punishment. He changed the person. (laughs) He brought in a replacement. He brought in Christ to stand before you who took on the sins of the world and through his holy life, his innocent death and his glorious resurrection, he moved all that and he gave you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. You believe that? I have no doubt that (laughs) you being here this morning, listening to the sermon, you'd say, yes, yes, of course, I believe that. I think that's it. Like most of us, many of us intellectually grasp this. We understand this, that through the unmerited grace of God and through faith, I possess Christ's righteousness. I'm pure, I'm holy. But how many of you still feel guilty? (laughs) How often don't we know intellectually that yes, yes, in God's courtroom, God does not count my sins against me, but I'm standing here in the muck of sin and there is at least one sin, maybe more, still hanging over me. Let me ask you another question. Will you, Christian, be judged? If so, are you afraid of that? Are you worried about that? Well, stop it. (laughs) Stop being worried and stop being afraid of that. And here's why. Jesus' own words from John chapter five, he said this, moreover, the father judges no one. This is Jesus talking. The father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to also have life in himself. And he has given him the authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to you? (laughs) Jesus is saying to you and making it abundantly clear that you Christian will not be judged. You will not be judged by the father. He does not count your sins against you anymore. What he's saying is you have been replaced. And guess what? The judge has been replaced too. Now he judges. I am the one who judges you. I judge you not based on what you have done or will do or are doing, but I judge you based on what I have done for you. You heard it. You heard it before. 
If anyone is, is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. God is not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what happens now in God's courtroom is that God takes out your file or maybe brings up your file on the computer. He types in sin, searching for it. And what comes up is none found. What comes up is a filter. And the filter is Christ Jesus who stands there in your place, who stands there for you. And now when God the Father looks at you, all he sees is the reflection, the glory, the radiance, and the brilliance of his son. He sees his righteousness. He sees nothing wrong with you, but only stuff that is right. Stuff that is righteous, the stuff of Jesus Christ. Believe that. Believe that. How many of you have heard or seen uh, ABC's new legal drama, uh, For Life? I promise, no spoiler alerts this morning. Uh, but for Life is a legal drama about the fictional character named Aaron Wallace who is sentenced to a uh, prison uh, sentence for life. And he's sentenced there because of crimes he did not commit. And so Aaron Wallace does a thing about that. He, he studies the law and he legally fights his case and represents him in, in court because he wants to fight for his family who's missing him on the outside. He wants to fight for the life that was taken away from him. Do you know this show is actually based on the events of uh, someone's real life? His name is Isaac Wright Jr. And Isaac Wright Jr. really did get sentenced to prison for life for crimes that he didn't commit. And he really did uh, study the law and represent himself in court while he was in prison serving his sentence. But I researched Isaac Wright Jr. this past week. And I found out something really, really interesting. Did you know he also represented other criminals in court? <laughs> other criminals who were wrongly convicted. He represented them in court because they couldn't afford legal representation. And it's really, really awesome. But long before he was able to fight his case, uh, he actually won the freedom for several other criminals. Imagine you're Isaac Wright Jr. for a second. You go there in court and as the legal representative for another criminal, uh, you win the court case and you hear the judge say to that criminal, no longer are you guilty. You are now innocent. Go home, go free. And so you have to go walk back to your prison cell. But next door, you see that same criminal sitting there. You see them sitting in their prison cell and you're Isaac Wright Jr. You walk up to him and you say, hey, what, are you, what are you doing here? That prisoner says, I'm, I'm here because I feel guilty. <laughs> you go, what? I just fought. I just fought for you. I, I, just, I just won your innocence. Yeah, but I'm kind of afraid to go before the judge. <laughs> you don't have to go before the judge anymore. Yeah, but I, I'm kind of worried about, you know, what my family will think of me, the fact that I've been in here. No, you can go be with your family. You have won your freedom to be with them. You've been declared innocent. Go. If a prisoner actually did that, <laughs> we'd think that's nuts. We'd think that's ridiculous, wouldn't we? If they stayed in prison in their cell, even though they had been declared innocent and free, that'd be absolutely wild. 
Jesus has pulled off an Isaac Wright Jr. He did it not just for one or several, but he did it for the sins of the whole world. God became man. God became a, well, criminal just like us by taking on the sins of the world and fighting our case for us. And before God, he set us free. So why? Why are some of you still hanging out in your cell? Why are some of you still feeling guilt that has been removed? Why are some of you afraid to come and gather around your faith family and be known and be a part of a faith family when your God has freed you for that? Why? Why? God is not counting your sins against you. Yes, yes, indeed, there was a charge. You had the charge against you. It was the guilt of sin. But know this, there was a verdict read 2,000 years ago when Christ burst forth from the tomb, and it was this. It was a declaration, God's declaration of your righteousness. And now you have, in fact, still some consequence. This is it. The consequence of your court case? <laughs> it's a life of ambassadorship. I'm going to read this section again. If, if you have your Bibles opened, please, please follow along with me. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So... From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I tried not to do it. I promise this. I told myself I would not do this, and I tried really, really hard not to trust me in this. <laughs> we just came out of a sermon series called Our Church, where basically every week I told you that our church is built by our sharing of the gospel, by our going out and sharing the good news about God, about how our God has called all of us to be sharers and ministers of the gospel, and that is how God knows that uh, that is how God built this church. That is how God knows uh, us and how others know God. It is through us sharing the gospel. So I said to myself, I'm not going to do it. Not in this sermon series. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to beat a dead horse. I'm not going to bring it up again. But I couldn't do it. Because God, God doesn't do that. <laughs> Whenever there is a declaration, a declaration of God telling someone that their sins are forgiven, the natural movement, the natural compulsion... Christ's love compels us oh, to go and declare the same thing. You heard it read before. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You are legally, authoritatively God's representative. That is who you are. And that's why you got to come back next week. <laughs> uh, Here's the thing. We're talking about the same thing. 
for the next five weeks. <laughs> but we're talking about it in different languages. We're talking about it in different languages that you need to know how to speak because God has called you to go and make his appeal. <laughs> his appeal for what? <laughs> to whom? His appeal to others who, who might speak different languages. I'm talking about the languages that God uses to share his gospel. You have been called to go and let them know what you know, <laughs> to let them know that their sins were counted against them, but no more. God no longer counts our sins against us. You have been called to be their lawyer, to stand with them in court and show them that there was charges, but the charges, they've been dropped. <laughs> You've been called to go <laughs> and stand with those who, who are afraid, who are very afraid of the judge and let them know that the old is gone, the new is here. <laughs> you are in Christ and Christ has counted your sins against you no more. He, not judge, he does not judge you for what you do, but he judges on the basis of what he has done. <laughs> That's your job. You're Christ's ambassadors. <laughs> You're Christ's lawyers, his legal representatives for others. So what are you waiting for? Go. This court's adjourned. Amen. <laughs>